Let's turn in our Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 28. This morning we are having a baptism service, which means we are going to talk about baptism. Um, if you don't know, baptism is one of the more controversial issues within the church. There are entire denominations and groups that have split off from one another over fragmentation, over baptism. Uh, we're not going to go into all those things, even though I would love to. If I could just keep you here for three hours, everybody 100% attentive, that's exactly what I would do, but that is not ever going to happen. Um, this morning, though, I think it is important uh, to talk about what we believe the Bible is teaching about baptism. And anytime we have a subject that's, uh, that would fall into that controversial topic uh, or a controversial uh, topic, feel free to ask questions um, and feel free to disagree. You can, if you can disagree biblically, not emotionally, not because grandma said it's this way, but if you can disagree biblically, that's the way to disagree. So uh, questions are welcome. But we want to talk about uh, what we believe about baptism, what we believe it signifies, and uh, why we're going to dunk some people underwater. That's what this, uh, this extra accoutrement is in the sanctuary this morning. So Matthew chapter 28, uh, I'm going to start reading with verse 18, and I'm going to read through the end of the book. This is after the resurrection of Christ. He's on the earth for 40 days. This is right before he ascends into heaven, and he's talking to the disciples, and he says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the starting point uh, for baptism because this is the command of Jesus Christ, and in the command, the last thing that he says is, I have all the authority. All of it has been given to me. Now you go in the, all the world, go make disciples of all nations, and then do some other things. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. So I want to go over three things that are here in this text that, that exemplify what we believe about baptism. And the very first thing is that you're going to notice is Jesus says to make disciples that get baptized. And I think that order is important because what I think Jesus is saying is that believers are baptized. Now you may be saying, that's really deep, Pastor Steve. That is super duper deep. That's, that's really deep. But, but this is actually where controversy erupts. And I'm not going to go into all the details. Uh, but we believe that you have to make a profession of faith in order to be baptized. This is why we do not baptize babies. We baptize adult or child children who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, 
We think what Jesus is saying is, you preach the gospel and make disciples, and what you do with disciples that are in a process of growing and learning is you baptize them. In other words, believers are baptized. Now, as simple as that sounds, what we are saying is, this is the, the set, and well, let's, let's cross-reference with another verse. I want you to go to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Same setting. Mark gives some additional information. Mark 16, 15. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The, the emphasis and the order is believe and be baptized. And then he says, whoever doesn't believe is condemned. So what we believe is, is that baptism follows believing. You believe in Jesus. You profess Him as Lord and Savior. You, you recognize, you acknowledge that the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart, opened your eyes to your own sinfulness, You've repented of your sin, and you've claimed and proclaimed Jesus as Lord. You did that because somebody somewhere was obedient to what Jesus said here, which is go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, make disciples. Somebody somewhere in your life, and it could have been on television, it could have been through a gospel tract, it could have been a friend at school, it could have been a preacher in Sunday school, it could have been in a sermon here, it could have been in any number of ways, you heard the call of the gospel. Repent, believe, turn to Christ, confess Him as Lord. You heard that. You responded to it. And the next thing that Jesus says to do is to be baptized. Now, this brings up a question. It comes up right here in Mark. Does baptism actually save people? Has anybody had this question? How does this work? Because some people do believe, and there's several verses that support their claim very well, that baptism saves you, and without baptism you can't be saved. And then there are other people who say baptism is kind of like a you probably should kind of thing. And there's a lot in between, and uh, there's a spectrum there. And I would say that both of those sides are not correct. I wouldn't agree with either side of that. To, to say that baptism and the water is what saves you is, I think, contradictory to what we read about believing and baptized. But I also think that treating it as, eh, it's okay. Jesus loves you. He understands. It's okay. That attitude is a lot more prevalent now than the other. The attitude of, ah, mm, it's okay. Which, if I read the Bible, it's decidedly not okay to think that way, to act that way, because that kind of thinking seems to find its way in all kinds of subjects and all kinds of issues. But with baptism, something so important that Jesus made it a part of the gospel call 
we need to look at exactly what it means. But in order to do that, I want to say, how are we saved? What is the saving agent? Well, it is the blood of Christ. It is what Jesus did. But how does, how does a Christian become a Christian? They, they do so by faith. They do so by faith in Jesus. So I want to look at a couple of verses that will help us with this. I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start reading with verse 23. Sorry, Daryl, I gave you the wrong reference there. Nothing new there. Romans, uh, Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I'm going to stop right there because I can already hear the wheels spinning out here in the congregation. And here's what the wheels spinning. This is what this is what I hear as the pastor. That's really complicated language, Pastor Steve. I have no idea what it's saying. I just hope you get somewhere that I understand it. Is that any of the wheels out there doing that? Because I haven't even got to whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So let me just real quickly say that what, what Paul is saying is, is that we're all sinners. That's easy. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. So something has to happen, and it's in verse 24. We have to be justified by His grace as a gift. And that is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put Jesus forward as propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means that the wrath of God against sin is satisfied. If you get a speeding ticket and you owe $125, the way you propitiate the wrath of the state of West Virginia is to give them $125. It cancels out the ticket, right? Does that make sense? The How do you cancel out the debt of sin that you have? You can't. You can't cancel it. God cancels it on our behalf through Jesus. This is called propitiation, and it was done through His blood. Jesus paid the debt of verse 23, our sin, with His blood. And then it says, this is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That, that is actually a gigantic mouthful. Why in the world would God have to prove that He is just? You see, that's what the verse actually says. It was to, verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. God might be just. 
Why does he say that? Because if you scooch back up, it says that there was in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How in the world did God pass over the sins of people in the Old Testament? Did any of the sins of the Old Testament, as you've read them, did any of them ever bother you? How did, how did David get to just go on being king after Bathsheba? How did that happen? God passed over that sin. Now, there is a whole sacrificial system. There's, there's a lot in here where I'm not going to get into this morning. But in order to show that God is just and payment for sin is made, the sacrifice of Jesus is being lifted up here in Romans 23 to say, look at what Jesus did. He showed God to be just because sin is dealt with. Sin is taken care of. Sin is eradicated in the death of His Son. And as a result, by faith, you experience that total wiping away of sin. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Nobody will stand before God in heaven and say, you're welcome, Lord. You're welcome. I met all the requirements. I did all the right things. You're welcome. Nobody is ever going to go to heaven and say that. Nobody is ever going to be able to do that because there is no boasting in heaven because you didn't have anything to do with it. Other than this, it's one of my favorite quotes. I think it's Jonathan Edwards. He said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. It's one of my favorite quotes because right here, Paul is saying, who's going to be boasting? Nobody. Not Nobody's going to be boasting. It's going to be 100% unadulterated worship when we're in heaven. And he says, is this by some kind of law? No. Some kind of works? No. It's the law of faith. Verse 28 is really what I was getting to. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You are justified. That means counted as righteous before God. And you ain't righteous. But you get counted like you are. It's kind of like adoption, which is also the language of the New Testament, where you are not the biological child of that person, but when you are adopted into the family and you get the last name, you are now a child of that person and that family that's adopted you. God adopts us into his family completely. We didn't earn, deserve, work, do anything to get it other than believe. So how are you saved? We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, you're not going to help enough old ladies across the street to get into heaven. You're not going to give enough money to the church. You're not going to... like. And I hear this all the time, and it's really hard. He's the kind of guy that would give the shirt off of his back. Do you know, and I say this respectfully and humbly, 
Hell is filled with guys that were willing to give the shirt off of their back. Hell is filled with women who did extraordinarily difficult things selflessly for other people. Because those works measured up to God's requirement of perfection fall totally short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We hold that one is justified by faith, and faith alone apart from works of the law. If you go over to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. There is no longer wrath from God pointed at us. Now there is only peace, love, and acceptance. And that all came through Jesus Christ. And it came because you had faith in what He did. We're justified by faith. I want you to go, because I'm just going to drive it home as much as I possibly can. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. You hear this, this language over and over in the New Testament. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And he goes on and makes it more explicit, for we are His workmanship. We are His poema, is the Greek. We are His poem. We are His specific work. You are unique. You are handcrafted. You are gods. You are not gods. You belong to God. I just want to make sure there was an apostrophe S on the end of gods, not that you. You are God's workmanship, crafted in and created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's just that the good works aren't what got you here. God got you here in salvation through His Son, by your faith, but you will do good works. In fact, you must do them if you are truly His, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in these works, these good works, these good things that we're supposed to do. And that brings us to uh, a really, really important Scripture, which is James chapter 2, verse 14. So what I'm trying to establish is, is that Believers get baptized. And I'm trying to explain how believers are justified by faith. But it's not the baptism that does the justification. It is the faith in Christ that does it. And I am making the argument that baptism is an act of faith. That we do because we believe. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? We, we believe baptism is an act of faith because Jesus told us to do it. And it demonstrates our faith. And I want to look at this passage in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
can that faith save him? That's a really specific way to say, if you're the kind of person who says, I believe, I believe in God. Have you ever encountered people, okay, let, let me make it more generic. Everybody's encountered people like this. But I'll, I'll never forget starting to notice athletes in particular um, that would thank God for winning championships that had 27 baby mamas in their life. Uh, and there's videos of them doing all kinds of works of iniquity. And then they get they win the championship. They're like, I just want to thank God. Um, anybody ever experienced that disconnect? Or people that people that say they believe in God and you think, didn't you just really do some awful things like 15 minutes ago? Does anybody you know what I'm talking about, right? Talking about we live in a culture that it's normal for people to say they believe in God. And in fact, James actually says that, uh, that Satan believes and trembles. Faith is not merely saying out of your mouth, I believe in God. Because Satan believes in God probably with more accuracy than you do. I love in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, um, The Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read, you should. It won't be required to go to heaven, but it will help you on your way there. Uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And in there, it's two demons having a conversation. And they're, they've got a man that they're assigned to that they're trying to ruin his life. And so it's an older demon giving advice to a younger demon. And in that conversation, he's talking about how to get this man disinterested from church. And he says, not the church that you and I see. That horrifying battalion with ramparts up, with guarded by the Spirit of God that is horrifying and we can't even look at it. But the church that the way the world and men in it see it. This weak and boring, dusty place. I'll never forget that description because the way the devil saw the church was this horrifying fortress of light. Whereas we see a haunted house of a school building in the West End of Huntington. And we see the broken people that are in the haunted house. And we see our own weakness and all we can see is weakness and brokenness. But because of Jesus... The devil knows exactly who we belong to and is terrified. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith, the kind that says, I believe in God, but there's nothing in your life that demonstrates that you believe in God, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, if it does, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So Paul tells us that we are not justified by works, but by faith. And James says, if you say that you have faith but no works, you're not justified. Now this becomes one of those places where people think the scriptures are butting heads, but they are. it's not. It's saying the same thing. Paul is approaching the mountain from this side, and that side of the mountain is, look up here at the top of the peak, which is you're justified by faith, which is true. And James is on the other side of the mountain saying, look up at the top of this peak. If you have faith, you will have works. If you don't have faith, you're not at the peak. You're not justified. Or if you don't have works, they're saying the same thing. You must have in our lives evidence that something has changed. Faith is not just believing and saying we believe. Faith is radically life-altering. It changes who we are because of the grace of God, the Spirit of God, that we are born again. All of that to say, baptism happens to believers as an act of faith. We are, being, we are baptizing people today because they, they have approached the church and said, I want to act out my faith and do what Jesus said to do, which is get baptized. I think the best way for me to signify, or the best illustration I've heard, because I've heard several, the best illustration I've heard that helped make sense of what I'm trying to say is the way that you would look at marriage in a wedding ring. When somebody gets married, how are they married? They come up front. Sometimes if we do weddings here, they stand like right here. And I stand right here. And they commit to each other vows. Right? They're, they're wedding vows. To death do us part. That is how somebody is married. Now they've got a long... Now the marriage doesn't end right there. That's where the marriage starts. It's Greg and Holly, just very, very recently. They just, they just did this. The, the marriage has years in front of it, but, but it started somewhere. And the marriage vows are where it starts. But in the ceremony of marriage, in our culture, and this is hopefully will help it make sense, we exchange rings. I would take mine off, but my fingers are too fat, and I'm not sure that I'll ever get it off again without surgery. Um, so, uh, but the wedding ring. What is the point of the wedding ring? Is the wedding ring marriage? It is not. But does the wedding ring have anything to do with marriage? Yes. The reason we wear a ring is it symbolizes, in fact, in the ceremony that we use, it's a never-ending circle that symbolizes how long your marriage is going to last. Forever, till you're dead. That is what the ring represents. It represents an emblem or a token or a symbol of the fact that I am committed to Jennifer Wayne for the rest of my life. That's what this ring represents. The ring is not the marriage. 
the ring is the symbol of the marriage. If I go somewhere out of town and they see me and I put my hand down and they see the ring, what, do, what does everybody know? This guy is married. Okay. The vows are our profession of faith. The ring is a symbol of that profession. Salvation and believing is our profession of faith and we're justified by faith. Baptism is like the ring. It is the symbol that's public to everybody that confesses out loud, I belong to Christ. That is what it's, that's, what it, that's what it's for. I do want to point out, though, that Jesus' command to get baptized is heavier and more important than even the wedding ring. This is why I say that it is not an optional thing to get baptized. Now, there could be circumstances where somebody becomes a Christian on their deathbed and they pass away in the next week and they never got baptized. I think they're going straight to heaven. The thief on the cross is another example. I know he's a unique case, but he didn't get baptized. The ring analogy helps me to see the importance of it, but I, I just want to say I think it even goes deeper for the Christian about baptism. One more place I want us to go, and we are going to get ready to do the baptisms. I want you to go to Romans chapter 6. Because if it's a symbol, if baptism is an emblem or a symbol, then what is it a symbol of? Romans chapter 6. We're going to read 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a symbol, and this is what the symbol is. We are baptized into His death. What, what he's arguing here in Romans chapter 6 is, how can you go on sinning when you're actually dead to sin? Don't you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into His death? And the image is in the water, when they get into the water and they, they sit down, when they go under the water, that is the symbol of burying someone. Jesus was buried in the tomb, and on the third day He was raised from the dead. When we bury them under the water, we are symbolizing Christ's death to sin and His resurrection to newness of life. And when we pull, pull them out, by the way, Eric asked me, how long am I going to be under the water? Which is a question a little kid would probably want to know. 
but I said, no more than five minutes tops. So that is not, that is not what I told him. Um, just, there was only one time where they slipped out of my hands and they were stuck back there. That only happened one time. Nobody even knew it happened but me and the recipient of the baptism. Um, I said, Eric, have you ever jumped in the pool and then you popped back up? It's like, yeah, okay, it's going to be faster than that. He's like, so, because what we don't want is the symbol to take on ultimate reality and you be all the way dead. So that is not what we want. It is just to be a symbol of death that you are unified. And I think this is what is really important. It's the word with. You are buried with Him. You are with Christ. It's really beyond comprehension that God is saying I look at you as being with Christ, buried, raised up brand new, all the sin washed away, gone. You are new in Christ because you died with Him to sin. In fact, if you want to know how to fight sin, if you want to know how to really, really, really fight sin, is you don't fight it with your willpower alone. You go to promises like this, and realize and recognize, I am dead to this thing. Now, Lord, help make it so. But feeding on this and thinking about this and praying this out is part of what we do when we fight sin. you got to know that it's already been conquered and forgiven in order to really win against sin. One more place. I said, I said that already, but... If we're going to bring it all the way around, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We're waiting for our baptismal recipients to come back anyway. So, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is saying to the church in, uh, at Ephesus, there is one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism. You are baptized into Christ. And this whole context is that we're doing something together. We are doing something together. We are doing Christianity together. This is a foreign concept that needs rooted into our hearts. We are in this together. And these scriptures are telling us that we were in one faith, one baptism, one Lord. We are in one body together. So baptism is a symbol of the death of Christ and His resurrection symbolizing my freedom from sin because I died to it. But it's also letting me know I am connected to you. And you are connected to me and when I meet a Christian from Uruguay, I am connected to that Christian. Not because of culture, not because of language. I'm connected because of Christ. 
truly and genuinely connected because we belong to Christ together. And finally, this is the last verse, I promise. It's Galatians chapter 3. I used to feel bad about giving too many verses, but I've been cured of that. Listen to these words, verse 25, Galatians 3. This ties, I think, everything we've talked about together. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This public display of baptism is an obedient response to Jesus' command. It symbolizes our unity to Christ's death and resurrection. It's our death to sin and our life lived to God in holiness. And here at the end, what, I, what these scriptures are saying is that it's together in one body. Something we are going to talk about in the weeks to come is how important it is that we are together. Okay. So we are going to baptize some folks. So, is Eric in here? He's back there. Eric, Molly, and Olivia. Okay. If you guys all want to come to this front row, I'm going to have the musicians come up, I believe. Hey, Lee and Greg, could you guys take this off and put it up here? Okay. It goes this way. you got to slide it out. We'll just put it back here. Careful of the people in the front row. So, this is... Uh, this is one of the ordinances of the church to baptize, to do what we just talked about, which is a public, like putting on the ring in a marriage ceremony, a public profession of faith. So you all are welcome to take pictures. You all are welcome, family, whatever you want to do. Um, whenever whenever they're coming up. In church, what I want you to do is make a commitment to pray for those that are getting baptized. This is a huge deal to make this public profession. So I don't know who's going to go first. Olivia? Olivia wants to go first? Okay. Come on in. You just step in right here. And then you step down there and you're going to sit down. 
So, Olivia, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life and submitted your life to him. Okay. Do you want to say anything? Okay, I just wanted to make sure. So what I'm going to have you do is I want you to do that and do this here. I want to pray for you first, okay? So we're going to pray for Olivia. She has made a profession of faith in Christ. She is captured by his spirit to do his will and belongs to him. And uh, we want to pray over her as she makes this awesome public profession. Father, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. We thank you for Olivia. We thank you for her life. We thank you for her future. God, we thank you for all that you've done. You who began a good work in her will see it completed until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray over her that the gift of God that's in her would be stirred up, that she would be a radical, bold witness for Christ to her generation, that she would utilize all the gifts you've given her, all the wisdom you've given her, all the creativity you've given her to do and be what you are calling her to do and be in this life. Lord, we thank you so much. We have no idea where you'll take her, but we know you will take her there with your grace, with your mercy, with your love. Lord, we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name. Olivia, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> awesome. Mom, get your We're going to do Eric or we're going to do Mom? Eric's coming. He's ready. All right, buddy, I got you. So, so what you're going to do is you're going to sit down right there. I'll help you. Okay. Now, I asked Eric if he wanted to give a speech, and he already said no. But, Eric, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, giving your heart to him. Have you done that? Okay, I knew you did. We had a big talk yesterday. It was good. So, Eric, I want to do the same thing. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to baptize you, okay? All right. Father, I thank you so much for this young man. Lord, I pray that he would shine like a light. Pray, God, that you would watch over him, protect him, and keep him. God, I pray that when he opens his mouth, your word and your wisdom would come out. I pray that you would stir up the gifts of God that are within him and that he would be used mightily for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that he would walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, that he would be an example, that he would stand for integrity and not do it in his own strength, but in the recognition, Lord, of your help and your grace. Lord, we thank you for the plans you have for him in the future, that you are with him in grace and truth. Lord, we thank you for all of this, and we thank you most importantly for saving him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Eric, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
warm, right? Okay. You weren't, they weren't expecting that it's warm. Some people think it has to be ice cold in order to make it legitimate, but it's we, we made it warm. So Molly, you have made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Okay. All right. Do you have anything you want to say? Okay. I didn't think so. All right. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to baptize you. Okay. Father, we come to you again in the precious name of Jesus, and we thank you for Molly's life. God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are to her and in her and through her. And I pray, Lord, that with clarity that she would be a light to this generation. Lord, all the creativity, all the ideas, all the things that you've placed in her heart, I pray that you would give life and that they would begin to blossom, that as she gets older and as you solidify that direction in her life, Lord, that she would have clarity of purpose and she would walk with boldness. Lord, I pray that, Lord, that your word would be like fire in her bones and that she would speak it. And she would do so, Lord, with love and compassion and without fear. We thank you so much for your blessings on her life. Lord, we thank you so much for the whole family. Lord, we, we give you glory for all in Jesus' name. Baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So why doesn't why don't we all just stand up and we're gonna pray? have a picnic, but I just want to say to all the family and friends that came, thank you for being here. The most wonderful thing that you can do after witnessing a public profession of faith from younger people is not to say, isn't that cute, but to recognize that the Spirit of God is at work in their life. And we as a church family together in this one faith, in this one baptism, that we as a church family together would remember this and those that have been baptized recently and pray for them, lift them up, and ask God to do His work in their life. So we're going to dismiss by, by doing that and we're going to have the picnic and we'll do some instruction. But let's pray before we go. Father, we thank You again so much. We thank you, Lord, for young people making public professions of faith. Lord, it is beautiful. It is glorious. They are a part of the body of Christ, buried with you, Lord, in baptism, raised to newness of life, dead to sin, not because of what they have done, not because their mom and dad believe, but because of you, Lord Jesus, your grace, your spirit of truth. Lord, I pray that they would know you and grow in that knowledge. And I pray, Lord, as a church, that we would be faithful to support them and everybody here that names Jesus Christ as Lord. We thank you for it, Lord. And we pray over the food we're going to eat, the fellowship we're going to have, the games we're going to play. We'll be glorified in all of it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Church, you're dismissed. We're going to take these chairs, stack them up, and move them somewhere. And we're going to bring some tables. God bless you all.